All right. Good morning, church. How are we doing today? We ready for this? All right. So here's what we're going to do. We're in the midst of Titus. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to the book of Titus. Uh, if you're new to the scriptures, new to church, new to Christianity, it's towards the end of the Bible. If you get to the very end of the book of Revelation, then head back to your left. You're going to come across a bunch of books that start with T. It's the last one there. So you can open up to Titus chapter 2. As you're doing that, and once you do find it, I'm going to have you turn into your tables, and I want you to go around make sure you know everybody's name, first and last name. Uh, if you feel comfortable, you can slip down your mask, say hi. Also, during the message, if you feel good, you can take the mask off. But I want you to go around once you find Titus. I want you to say your first last name and I want you to identify, this is critically important, who is the oldest and the youngest person at your table. So go ahead and start that. All right, you got about 15 seconds. Everyone's name and who's the oldest, who's youngest. All right, so we're gonna get started. Can I have the oldest and the youngest stand up at your table? Yeah, the oldest and the youngest. Look around this room, you can decide who's who. Look around the room. These are your old folks and your young folks. All right, let's give them a round of applause. The young and the old, wonderful. Sorry, Polly. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what a horrible mixer. Uh, so this is going to make sense to you as we dive into this book of Titus. If you missed any of our messages leading up to this, they're all on our website. You can catch up, uh, look at those. I also want to let you know there should be notebooks on several of your tables. Uh, those notebooks, Grace, can you just hold that really high if you see Grace up here? A lot of different notebooks at tables. If you don't have one, that's for you to keep. And we'll replenish those each week uh, so that if you don't have a, a journal to take notes, to study the scripture, please go ahead and take that home. That's our gift uh, to you. So uh, the book of Titus, in the first couple of centuries of Christianity, the lives of Christians, of Christ followers, were hugely instrumental with uh, affecting the spread of Christ throughout all of the different regions. And it was really the transforming power of Christ that began to spread, whispers of it, of people literally changed from, from death to life, from, from one version of who they were to the next, that, that power spread. We actually have letters, um, archaeology uh, discovered letters of Roman officials 
officials talking about how Christians did exactly what they said they were going to do. They, they went and they picked up those who no one else would touch, no one else would mingle with, and they actually cared for them. They loved them. They encouraged them. They nursed them back to health. And these Roman officials, we have letters writing about exactly that. They talked about how real Christians could never be coerced into denying Jesus Christ. That no matter what they did to them, no matter what they said about them, no matter what they offered them, they couldn't get Christians to deny Jesus Christ, even if it cost them their lives. However, as time went on, that this powerful witness of Christians began to deteriorate. And it didn't happen overnight. It didn't even happen over a year. It happened moment after moment, situational involvement of Christians, hour by hour, week by week, and before we knew it, that kind of determination and consistency and allegiance to Jesus Christ began to deteriorate. There's a 19th century German philosopher who said, show me your redeemed life, and I might be inclined to believe in your redeemer. Maybe. Gandhi is often quoted as saying, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. This is important. This is, this is Titus, but it's also you and I. This is important because times haven't changed. And many non-believers today aren't terribly impressed with the testimony of Christians. There appears to be very often a, a disconnect between what we say or what we teach or what we proclaim and then over here how we live our lives. What we do on the weekend. How we interact with that annoying neighbor. What we post online how we interact with, with people who have burned us, who don't deserve forgiveness. And so there's this discrepancy in the church today. For many, there's a disconnect between what we say and, and how we live. And way too often, Christians reflect Paul's statement, and I'll go as far as say, my life often reflects, the elders' lives reflect this, your lives reflect this, as Timothy writes in chapter 1, verse 16, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. Now, I, I, I want to just identify something real quickly. This is not a, a, a condemnation sermon. This isn't a guilt sermon. We're going to turn to good. But I think it's important to start with how do our lives reflect? Why does, why does Paul and, and why does Timothy and why does Titus, why do all these different people who write these epistles in the New Testament talk about how we ought to live? What's the purpose? Is it works-based? Is it I have to do all these things otherwise God's not going to love me? What is the essence of of it. The irony and the tragedy, depending on how you look at it, is that the description of Paul, while it may fit many Christians, was also describing the teachers of the day in Crete. 
These were the people in charge. These were the people who were teaching others in regards to how to live. Because this mindset, this worldview, this, this pagan mindset had seeped in and found its way into the church. And now the church was beginning to teach some of these things. And Paul goes on to describe them as detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. That word unfit. If you, if you like to mark up your Bibles, uh, I'd encourage you to write at chapter two, just put unfit and then put a, uh, an equal sign or less than uh, to sound. And you're gonna see that here in just, sec just a second. The word unfit is a very interesting word in the Greek, why it's used in our passage this morning. It's the word odokimos. So go ahead and say it. It's, a, it's, a, it's really a construction term. If you go to a construction site uh, in the early uh, times of, of the church being birthed, it was used in the construction site. When they were constructing a building and, and they found a stone that had been selected that they went, ah, this is, just isn't going to work. They would mark it with an A with that Greek word, and it would be tossed aside so that no one would use it because it's unfit to be used for the building. It's a fascinating word why it's used in our passage today. Pretty powerful warning. So in our passage, Paul further instructs Titus, please follow along with me as I read this morning's passage. You don't need to stand. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. As for you, Titus... Promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome or sound teaching. Teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect and to live wisely. Mine's out of the New Living Translation. They must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. Verse 3, similarly, teach older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. These older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and pure, to work in their homes, to do good, and to be submissive to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the whole word of God. In the same way, encourage the young man to live wisely. And you yourselves must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. Teach the truth so that your teaching can't be criticized. Then those who oppose you will be shamed and have nothing bad to say about us. Verse 9. Slaves must always obey their masters. Do their best to please them. They must not, must not talk back or steal, must, but must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Then they will make the teachings about God our Savior attractive in every way. That is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now listen, uh, you don't have to have just woken up this morning to realize there's some really hard things in this passage. Everybody agree? We're going to do our best to unpack some of those, to give some clarity uh, to those so that you can understand a little bit further. 
he begins by saying you must teach what is appropriate, sound doctrine. So I want you to turn into your tables and I want each of you to say something along the lines of what do you believe sound doctrine is? There's no wrong answers. There are, but you can offer them. Uh, there's no wrong answer at your table. There's wrong answers theologically, but not at your table. So go ahead, turn to your table uh, and share what do you believe is sound doctrine. Go for it. All right, so a couple of things I'm sure were thrown out around your table on what you believe sound doctrine is. Here's what's interesting. This is why I wanted you to write unfit on near chapter two and sound as well, because here's what's fascinating about this. The, the word for sound is such an incredible contrast to the word unfit. In fact, in the original language, we get the word hygiene from this word, from sound. It means healthy. It means good. It's, it's when you send your teenagers to go shower because you can't stand to be in their presence, uh, at least if you have boys like me. Uh, they come out, they're, they're healthy, they're whole, they're fit, they smell somewhat decent. And this helps our doctrine in the church. Let's just make this very, very easy. Sometimes we can have all these huge words in the church, and really it's not that complicated. The idea of sound doctrine is healthy and true teachings. That's exactly what we're looking at. Instead of unfit. That's what the Bible is trying to describe. And it's important that we grasp Paul, what Paul is trying to instruct Titus to do here. He's telling Titus to instruct these very young churches. Now, you know this, a, a young church, a young business, a young marriage, a young baby is susceptible, right? Because they need to mature to handle themselves. So Paul is saying these brand new churches instruct these people in Crete to live their lives in such a way that the deep truths of Christianity, i.e. doctrine, that's all it is, the truths about Christianity would be attractive to others. Now, the interesting thing about this, and this is uh, something for you to just sit on for a moment, is if we are encouraged to treat the doctrine, the teachings, the life of Jesus in such a way that it is attractive to others, what is the connotation here? That we could live a life that's unattractive. That others could look at us and go, if that's the gospel, I want nothing to do with it. 
That is sobering, friends. That is something we have to sit on because we have the opportunity every single day to exhibit our lives, to teach, if you would, because that's what it's talking about, how you live your life can either make the gospel attractive or make the gospel very unattractive. And that's what we have to wrestle with in the church today. And not just the church today, but where we are going, where we're going with culture. This constant battle between good and bad, between good and evil. We, we have to wrestle with that. And then how do we live our lives moving forward? Because according to God, and then thus Paul, our behavior displays the truth and the beauty and the power of the message of Jesus Christ. That's our call. So when, when Jesus walks this world and he says, Grace, follow me. Alex, follow me. Paul, Cheryl, follow me. It, yes, it's, yes, Lord, I'll pray the prayer. Uh, I'll ask for forgiveness. I'll receive your grace. I'll receive your mercy. And then he says, now you are to live out my message in your life, in every aspect of it. No time off. You are on duty every minute, every second of every day. Now, hopefully what you're feeling is that's a high bar. That's a high bar for me to live the life of Jesus every day. And I would say, you're 100% right, and that's our bar. And if you can't meet it, you go to hell outside of Jesus Christ. That's why we need Jesus. Because before Jesus on the cross, that was the message. If you can't, then you won't. Well, we know this, and you know this about your life. No one can be perfect. No one can live the life of Jesus every second, every minute of every day. And that's our bar. And Jesus comes and says, I, I get it, you can't. There's no possible way you can. That's why you live through me. That's why Alex encourages us to, to bring the power, not of ourself into our worship, but to bring the power of God into our worship. Why? Because we can't. And instead of beating yourself up each and every day, each and every moment that you come before God and go, man, I've got to confess sin again, instead, turn it around and go, I get to come and confess sin. And I get to receive forgiveness. You see, it's the same idea just looked at in a different angle. The word Paul strategically uses here more captures the idea of teaching by the way that we live our lives rather than in a, in a closed classroom setting with certain hours, like if you have a professor or a teacher in high school, it's not, it's not what it's being referred to. It's just day-to-day -day living. It's the idea contained in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 through 7. These commandments that Moses instructed the people, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. That does not mean hit them with this book. It does not mean lecture your kids every day. It does not mean to tell them every time they do something wrong. To impress means to live it out. So to live out the commandments to your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Live the life of Jesus. Live the gospel. Because you will affect so many different people 
many of whom you'll never know, but they're watching you. This is why we, we, we had you uh, identify the old person and the young person at your table. Sorry if you're the old person. Like, it just happens. You didn't always used to be the old one. Now you are. Sorry. Uh, and the reality is, is because people are watching you. You, when you were young, you watched, you watched old people. You did. You watched them. You thought they were weird. You thought they were out of touch. You thought they didn't understand. You thought uh, that they didn't relate to your music. They didn't relate to the way you dress. And now you're one of them. Welcome to the club. And now there's a new generation who goes, finally, a generation that has it right. And they are thinking this, college students, high school students, like, finally, this will change humanity forever because finally the, the, the right generation is here. And eventually you too are going to be saggy and old. And you are going to be the ones that people go, ugh, they're just so out of touch. It's just this life cycle. And God knows this. So he says, don't fall into the trap of cultural living, you people in Crete, you church. Instead, live the gospel because that won't grow old. That won't change. That will sustain time. That will endure. All of the truths contained in the scriptures have nothing to do with cultural coolness. It has to do with truth. And the truth will last cool won't. It just happens. We never think it will happen to us, and we look in the mirror and go, I'm not cool anymore. And usually you're several decades late to that realization. <laughs> you just are. Truth hurts. So in Titus, Paul says, in order to do this, in order to, to break down these barriers, do exactly what I'm going to tell you in verse 1. You, however, remember what's happened here. In all of chapter 1, he's like, make the elders still do, do this. Make the elders do that. This is what the elders are going to do. Make sure they defend this. They refute this. All these things. And then he gets to chapter 2, verse 1. And he says, you, however, it's like when your parents are disciplining all the kids in the house. And when it's not on here, you're like, whew, glad it's not me. And then they turn and they go, and you. And then it's game on. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine, to healthy doctrine, to, to doctrine that brings about life. As you live your life, Titus, live in a way that people are attracted to the gospel. You can do it. And the verb tense that Paul uses for teaching what is appropriate to sound doctrine is a present tense verb. Anyone, college students, present tense verb is what? To older people. <laughs> present tense verb. Alex. Yeah, it's happening now. It's always happening. There's not an end date. It's happening right now, which means that it should be taking place all the time. So it wasn't like uh, Paul wrote this and went, hey, for right now, just do this. No, this is supposed to be happening right now, today, the 2nd of May, 2021. You, friends, who are followers of Jesus, according to Paul, ought to live a life of sound doctrine. This takes it from the scriptures and makes it personal because you have to grapple with this. 
What this means is he's not talking about dropping your kids off at Sunday school and hoping they fall in love with Jesus. It means you're living the life before them. What this means is you're not just attending a Bible study, checking off a box and saying, I'm doing the Christian thing, and then hoping you continue to grow. No, it doesn't work that way. It's every minute of every day living a life of sound doctrine. It's this idea that we call mentoring, that we look at those who are more seasoned. I'll be nicer. We look at those who are more seasoned in the faith and go, man, they've been through it. I'm going to keep my eye on them. They know how to have marriage. They know how to uh, raise children. They know how to go through crisis. They know how to handle death. They know how to handle cultural problems because, boy, they've been through it. My dear friend, Polly, is going to be 95 years old. Polly has seen so much in 95 years. She's a wealth of knowledge for every single person in this room. And that's what Paul is starting to lay these seeds where, where someone takes you under their guidance or you intentionally come along someone else who's mature in faith and you watch how they do life and you emulate it because they're doing something that is attractive to you in the gospel. Their love for God, their love of the scriptures, their love for prayer, their, their, even their, their love to receive forgiveness in confession. It's attractive. And don't miss what's happening here. Paul is taking our doctrine, again, the teachings of the scripture, what we learn in the Bible or from a Bible study or for a sermon, and he's putting it on the streets so that it's applied and lived out every day. That's how the church grows. Paul's, Paul's brilliant, empowered by the Holy Spirit, but God picks some brilliant people, and Paul is one. And Paul knows, hey, teaching isn't going to change this culture. Certainly the people in Crete, remember how he referred to them in verse 16. They're liars, they're evil, they're gluttons. Like, he doesn't have much nice things to say about them. But he knows if we take the gospel and we go live that out, lives are going to change. Let's make this very personal. If you take the gospel to your job, if you take the gospel to your neighborhood, if you take the gospel to your university, it has the ability to change the world without having to teach and Bible thump. Are you with me? Is this kind of making sense? This is the call to living. The goal of a Bible study or a sermon or a podcast is never merely intellectual knowledge. The point is never so that you know more. It's so that you live more. And the more that we know the truth of the scriptures, the, the more that we know how God views us, the more that we understand how much he loves us, how much grace and mercy he offers us, that changes how we live. That's different than someone standing up and saying, do this and do that and do this and do that in ways that we can't quite possibly live up to. And that's what Paul is emphasizing here. I especially appreciate how Paul puts this in the very last verse of our passage, verse 10. Show that they, the Christian, can be fully trusted 
so that in every way they will make the teachings about God our Savior attractive, enticing, hope. Friends, this is what our world's looking for. These are, these are what our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers are looking for. They're looking for some kind of life that's worthy of me beginning to follow. And the whole world's looking for this. The, the, uh, the whole world has been looking at, for this f- since the beginning of time. In the way you live your life, listen, you have the privilege and the responsibility to make the gospel of Jesus Christ attractive. But if you come across as condescending or judgmental or know-it-all, the gospel doesn't look attractive at all. There's some pretty hard words I could use, but I'm sure you could kind of go there of what the gospel looks like. And Jesus did an amazing job with this. He is Jesus. Of course he did an amazing job. But if we break down the life of Jesus, why did he do an amazing job? Certainly his teachings were phenomenal. They were inspired and and led by God his Father. But why else? Because of how he lived his life. Because of how he broke cultural norms. How he went and and hung out with the woman at the well. We we read past that so quickly and we forget what what a huge cultural shock that was. For him to, to go to uh, someone with leprosy and, and sit with them. To love the unlovable. To love and, and give a voice for those who have no voice. That's the life that Jesus did. And therefore, his life was so attractive that what did the people say whenever he would come to town? I've heard about this Jesus. Not, oh, I've, I've listened to several of his podcasts. Phenomenal great speaker. I've read his books. Awesome author. No, they just heard of him. They heard of how he lived his life. They certainly heard mumblings about some of his teachings, but they heard about Jesus. And that was the flag that, that Jesus carried as he lived his life. And then his teachings came. And that's our call. That's what we are to do. That's how we're to live our lives. The principle ought to be the same as we live our lives. Keep it up. Keep being patient. Be kind. Turn the other cheek. Put the interests of others first. Give someone dignity. Why? Well, because you're supposed to be a good person if you're a Christian. No, hogwash. That's not true. You're supposed to live the life of Jesus if you're a Christian. And so that's why we're called to do all of these different things. But did you catch the mentoring system that Paul set up here? It's similar to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. You can see that on your uh, television screen at home or up on the screen here. Paul reiterates that older men take seriously living out the transformed life of the Holy Spirit is constantly trying to produce within us. And then these older men take a younger man under their wing and they teach them how to do life together, how to live out a life of walking with the Lord. This is all his plan. 
It was always supposed to be this way. And likewise, older women, to live a life that attracts younger women to be curious about the transforming power of God. These older women to, to mentor younger women in their walk with Jesus. I, I watched Teddy and Henry, Teddy and whatever, uh, Max, he's mine, forgot his name. <laughs> Teddy and Max up here worshiping during worship. And, and Teddy was spinning. I started to get nauseous, so I had to look away from him, but he's just spinning during worship. How many of you, like, if, if I were to tell you to spin for two minutes, you'd be in bad trouble? Yeah. Can't do that anymore. I can't even watch someone do it. So he's just spinning, presumably led by the Spirit or sugar, and Max is watching him, and I thought to myself, are they watching everyone else? Do they watch your smiles? Do they watch your interaction as you grab a cup of coffee and ask, hey, how's your mom doing? Hey, how's school going? I know you were struggling last week. How are you doing? The younger generation is watching you. I cannot say it enough. They're watching your faith. They're watching your passion. They're watching you. And then lastly, Paul instructs slaves on how they should behave. Now, before we proceed, I want to make this point clear, as clear as I possibly can in word, as we've done several times throughout the years. God and the Bible never, ever, 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 ever condone slavery. Period. Never. If you've heard friends bring that, if you've heard professors bring that, it is absolutely not true. Does he address, does God address slavery? Yes, he addresses slavery. Does he ever condone, support it, highlight it, say that we ought to do it? Never. It is not in the scriptures. God hates slavery. He hates oppressed people. And I don't care if the oppressed person is a woman, the oppressed person is someone of color or someone of a handicap. Anytime we see culture where we oppress people because fill in the blank, it doesn't matter what it is, God hates that. And make no mistake about it, there is a righteous hate in God. So I just want to make sure that we're abundantly clear on this. The word slave is the same word used as bondservant. It's the same word that Paul refers to him, slave. I, I am a slave. It's the same place within the scriptures uh, that we, we see talking about uh, teachers and students. So if you're a teacher and you're a student, if you're a student, you're a slave. Sometimes it's voluntary, sometimes it's involuntary. But it's a place of learning, it's a place of submission, it's a place of being told what to do. It is not Western American uh, Civil War slavery. I know that's we, what we think of, but that's not what is being described in the Scriptures. The application for us would be employees. It's not the perfect analogy. It's a little bit off, but it's the closest we can get to today is that it's the idea of employees. Now, I know some of you feel like a slave in your job or, or you feel like a slave at college or high school, but it's the idea of being underneath someone. And how we act as an employee sends a message. How we act as someone who is under someone else's authority sends a message 
And we're not talking about trying to earn brownie points. We're not trying to earn a promotion. We're not trying to make sure we're in with the right people. It's just how you live your life in a context matters. The same principle is talked about in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let, let uh, I'm going to turn around. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all those to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Praise you? No, it's beginning to rain. I just want to give you advance notice. Uh, if it begins to hail, which often happens in April and May in Colorado, uh, you're okay. It's just, it could be slightly frightening uh, because it's a metal roof. Anyway, so bring it on, Lord. Not like Lieutenant Dan bring it on and, you know. All right, where are we? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Here's what it says. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Let me, let me make this personal. Be careful on how you live around your unbelieving friends. Then, even if they accuse you for doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Notice, they're not going to give honor to God now. Notice you're not going to give any you're not going to get any credit now. No one's going to look at you and go, "Man, she was just such a God-fearing, God-honoring woman, like amazing." Now you're not going to get that now. But there will come a day, the Bible says, when when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead once again, that they're going to see that's going to get really loud. They're going to see that, you're safe. They're going to see that <laughs> And they're going to praise your Father in heaven. You're good. You're good, everybody. So in both of these passages, the end result will be that they're glorifying God. Wouldn't it be cool if that was like angels clapping? Yeah. It's just cool. This might be a small church, but I'm glad we're dry. The only reason they would be glorifying God is if they accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And by the way you live your life, you can create curiosity so that people watch you. You say, I don't want to be watched. You might know these people, right? Some people will say, uh, what would Jesus do? Or I love Jesus on their bumper of their car. And then they go drive a little bit and they're like, yeah, this has got to come off. I wasn't following you, but, right? We've got these bumper stickers on our car, and then we realize I'm an awful driver, and I'm kind of a jerk. So I got to either change my driving or get this bumper sticker off. So let's get this bumper sticker off. How we live our life matters because people are watching. Let me ask you a, a question. <laughs> Who has modeled the love of Jesus to you? Who, right now in your life, who lives a life that you watch and go, man, I want that. I want to pursue what they have. Who has modeled a walk with Christ in such a way that it creates such curiosity in your world? I want to tell you a story 
about my new friend. She doesn't know she's a friend, but I consider her a friend. Her name is Anita Parson. I'm going to encourage you to to get this book. If you're taking notes, you can write it down. Anita Parson, P-A-R-S-A-N. The book is titled Stranger No More, A Muslim's Refugee Story of Harrowing Escape, Miraculous Rescue, and the Quiet Call of Jesus. Anita was raised in a Muslim family in Iran, a hardcore Muslim family. She was married off at the age of 16 years old to someone she didn't choose. They very quickly got pregnant and she had a baby. And at 17, her assigned husband in Iran was killed in a car accident. And so at the age of 17 years old, she's been married, she is a widow, and now she is a single mom. She remarried to another Muslim husband, this one extremely abusive, for many years. She fled with her children uh, to several other countries trying to find safety. And at some point during her refugee journey, a man handed her a Bible. She grabbed this Bible, unable to read most of it. She read several words of it, but couldn't understand most of it. But every day held on to her Bible. (laughs) And she smelt it and kissed it. Praying to something. Praying to someone. And she didn't know who it was. She held on to this Bible. And then Jesus reached out to her. He spoke her name. And she knelt down and she submitted to Jesus. She's now the lead pastor of two different churches in the Church of Sweden. And she is influencing thousands and thousands and thousands of men and women all around the world. But especially women who are looking at her and they have hope because she has hope. They're watching. And how she lives her life, how she pursues Jesus, she can't possibly meet with each person, but how she lives her life is affecting thousands of people, both up close and afar my friend, Anita Parson. So here's my question. Who are you intentionally trying to model? Uh, Who are you living life with that you know they're watching? 
and you might never teach them a thing. You might never, you might never open up the scriptures, but, but you are teaching them by how you live your life. And if you're doing that for someone, they should be on your daily prayer list. You're just praying for them and praying for them and praying for them as Alex led us in communion. Pray that God would take the seeds of your life and, and water it and cause growth in a full-blown relationship with the God of all creation in the person you're mentoring. And I would also ask this, do you have someone that you are watching? Do you have someone that you're watching every aspect of their life and you're learning and you're applying and you're going, they did that, I'm going to do that. They're soft and tender, I'm gonna be soft and tender. Wow, they were really patient, I'm going to be patient. And here's the, here's the great news, friends. I know for some of you, some of you carry guilt. Some of you carry shame. Some of you still carry very vivid thoughts and experiences of your past, and they still define you. That's still who you are. And I want to say with every truth and every fabric of power in the name of Jesus Christ, that is not who you are. You are a new creation. You are a son. You are a daughter of the living king. Let no one look down on you. You have power. The enemy has been defeated. He will not be quiet, but he has been defeated. And because of that, you have hope today. You are loved. You are cherished today. And that's the gospel. So when we live that out, when we hold our heads high, when we walk out these doors and we walk out into culture and we hold our head high. We don't hold our head high because we're pompous or, or thinking so highly of ourselves. We hold our hell high. We hold our heads high because we are loved by the King when we shouldn't be. But you are. God loves you. He cares deeply for you. And as you live in that love, and as you live in that forgiveness, that will change the world around you. Let's stand together as we prepare to close in worship song. God, thank you that we are dry. Thank you for this rain. We need it. We're grateful it's not snow. We're grateful that we can gather here and worship. Thank you for, for so many who have gathered with us online. 
and we read some of these passages and, and we're, we're told a bunch of things. If you're old, do this. If you're young, do this. If you're a man, do this. If you're a slave, do this. All of these things culminating to verse 10 so that the world around us will see the life we live and the gospel and you, our God, would be made attractive. Lord, forgive us when we've not made you attractive. We might have been right, but we've not made you attractive. Help us to change that as we move forward, to live a life, not in Crete, but here in Boulder County, in Adams County, Jefferson County. The list goes on. Help us to live a life that's worthy of you, that reflects all of who you are so that the gospel would be made attractive. And thank you that you take simple people like us to do just that. We love you. Hear our prayers, hear our song as we focus our eyes on you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. And all of God's people said.